Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. Who are you then? I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. And yep, yep, we're doing Die Hard. Okay, let's get straight into it. All right, now, this is going to take us into the world of Christmas, because just to let you into a little behind-the-scenes secret... And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. As soon as you do a time-specific episode, like one about Halloween or one about Christmas, is... For starters, people may not be tuning in. They might be doing other things during those fun times. And secondly, in January, you don't really want to hear a Christmas thing. So let's let's face it, Die Hard is interesting because there are some people who feel wholeheartedly that it is a Christmas movie. It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles, so be of good cheer. And there are other people who say it absolutely isn't, including Bruce Willis in an interview. A few years ago, I hasten to add, Bruce Willis, if you're not aware, actually retired from acting in 2022. In 2021, he actually produced a total of five virtually universally abysmal movies, and he was widely condemned for them, and people were saying, you're clearly just sort of reading dummy boards off the other side of the camera, etc. And then he revealed that he actually had an illness, and that he had just decided that he was going to retire. Now, actually, one of those films that came out that was pretty diabolical called The Fortress actually had the sequel filmed back to back so Bruce Willis still has one more movie to come out but seeing the first of those films was atrocious I don't think the second one's going to be any better but let's remember Bruce in his prime or is it his prime this is something else that's going to be interesting so look this is going to bring in, obviously, what is and isn't a Christmas story. We get to talk about the history of a movie and also the state of Hollywood and a genre as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, we're talking about relatively recent history with some of it, and some of it is pretty ancient history as well. But let's start in 1966 with the novel The Detective, written by Roderick Thorpe. And you're probably going, I have never heard of that. It's kind of a pulp novel, a kind of neo-noir. It's, it's set in the 60s. It's a contemporary story, but it's very much the kind of noir crime thriller 
1968, it was turned into a movie starring Frank Sinatra. Roderick Thorpe's number one bestseller, a literary guild selection. Now, an adult powerhouse on the screen. And it was a big hit for Frank at a time when Frank's star was beginning to wane a little bit in Hollywood, and he had lots of different big hits. But this actually ended up being one of his biggest hits, and it was well-reviewed, and it did good box office, and it sort of gave Frank a shot in the arm in terms of his career as a film star. Obviously, musically, he was doing fine. Now, why on earth am I talking about this? Well, because Roderick Thorpe recognized that he had a hit, and so he created a sequel. It took him a fair few years, so the original The Detective was written in 66, the movie comes out in 68. Now, nobody knew it was going to be a hit, then it's a hit, so you would think maybe by 70, 71, you got the sequel out, but no, it took Roderick Thorpe until 1979 to create the sequel called Nothing Lasts forever. Now, this continued the story of the hero, and basically Thorpe had an eye to the fact that this could be the the big sequel to The Detective. It ended up getting involved in lots of different sort of like, not litigation, but rewrites and, and the sort of the Hollywood machine. And so by the time they were kind of ready to sort of look at this as a movie potential, we're now talking about the mid 80s. In other words, almost 20 years since the original came out. But fortunately, again, Roderick Thorpe kind of had an eye to this, and so he made sure that the detective had actually aged in the actual original story as well. What's any of this got to do with Die Hard? Because the story of Nothing Lasts Forever is basically our eponymous detective from the previous movie slash book. He arrives at a tower block where basically there is a heist going on. And you're sitting there going, oh, hang on, that's Die Hard. It is. It is indeed. It's the inspiration for Die Hard, which meant that the very first person that was up to play John McClane, although he had a completely different name at that time, was Frank Sinatra. Now, you don't tend to think of, do we pick Frank Sinatra or do we pick Bruce Willis? But this is the one time in history where it was there. And clearly, obviously, at that stage, it was a very different movie. It didn't pan out, as you already know. So, what happened next is they needed a new star of it, and in the mid-1980s, there were some hot action stars, but they were very muscular. My favourite, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the other one, I have a huge soft spot for, but more as an actor, that'll be Sylvester Stallone. Both of them in the mid-1980s, very, very expensive. And also... Are you going to believe either of those is just your average cop who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Because I'm a fighter. That's the way I'm made, Adrian. They would have happily have taken one of those two names because they would have absolutely opened the movie and opened the movie big. But no, they didn't. And in the end, they went to Bruce Willis, who at the time was best known for a, a very successful sort of comedy drama show called Moonlighting with Sybil Shepherd and... Basically, it was sort of slightly romantic. It's like, will they, won't they, between the two of them. Why, when I first found her, she was nothing but a poor little urchin out in the street, urchining. 
but also there were sort of like crazy skits and sometimes just flat out comedy and songs as well. And there she was just walking down the street singing, do what did it, did it, dum, did it, do. That's what you say. It sort of fitted Bruce Willis, who had an eclectic background of acting. Basically, he did a bit of everything. And it is worth remembering that at his peak in the late 80s, he did actually release some sort of barroom blues type albums as well. Where he played the harmonica and he sang. And obviously, when you get the holy trinity of Schwarzenegger, Stallone and Willis coming together in the late 1980s, you get Planet Hollywood. And these three, in essence, rivals, although Willis was very much coming up from behind compared to the other two, created this massive international brand. Now, I went to Planet Hollywood very near Leicester Square in central London. I went to that many, many times. It doesn't exist there anymore. I don't even know if the Planet Hollywood brand still exists at all. But at its peak, you had people queuing up to go in there. And the, the thing about Planet Hollywood is, obviously, it's American-style food. You could get a burger or something like that. It was very expensive. But it was full. Each one was full of actual props from movies, you know, seeing, like, the whip from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that, or the motorbike that Schwarzenegger drove in Terminator 2. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> You know, sitting there surrounded by these pieces of Hollywood history. And of course, occasionally they would flash up little iconic scenes from movies. It just made you feel special. It's as close to being in the movies that you can get without, you know, actually being in a movie. So Planet Hollywood was huge and fun and great and I had a great time there and it was really expensive. There were times when, particularly with Bruce Willis, if one of his movies was opening in London... He would actually go to Planet Hollywood and he would be a waiter. And I remember having the conversation. This never happened to me. But if Bruce Willis was your waiter, your server at Planet Hollywood, would you tip him? Now, I'm sure because it's like, you know, he's doing it for a day and he's kind of doing it as a PR stunt. I'm sure his service would be excellent and he would be extremely charming and stuff like that. But he is also a multimillionaire. So do you give him a tip or not? I don't know. You know, that's kind of a dilemma. Think about that. It'd be curious. Uh, I'm, as always, I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. Love to get your thoughts. Would you tip Bruce? I mean, obviously not now. The, the man, I mean, it's even richer now, but, you know, he has issues with, like, memory and uh, sort of, sort of, I believe there's sort of an element of motor neuron disorder to his disorder. So I'm talking about Bruce in his prime. Everybody's having fun. No ethical issues here whatsoever. Do you tip somebody who's richer than you is my question. Okay. So love to get your thoughts on that. Love to get your thoughts on this podcast as well. And please look, click subscribe, spread the word, give us a review, tell one other actual human being, look, retweet the stuff I tweet out about the podcast, please. Thank you very much. The other question I'm going to ask you, okay, tell me about Bruce. But the second question is, is Die Hard? A Christmas movie, okay? Just putting it out there. No right or wrong answers. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And I'll be giving you kind of the pros and cons of, of whether or not it's a Christmas movie as we go through this. So we're talking about the 1960s is the kernel of this idea that would eventually become Die Hard. So we are well over sort of 60 years in the past. So I'm going to call that historical. I mean, other things in 1966. Well, the, the principal thing, if you're in Britain, then you know about 
the England winning the World Cup, and that is a little slice of history. But there are lots of other things going on as well. Most depressingly, the Vietnam War, which, again, we would consider history. And hopefully I'm selling you on that this is a legitimate bit of history. So we now get Die Hard being shaped into an actual movie, which means you need a screenwriter. And what I find interesting is screenwriters, I personally feel, are the most important job in any kind of movie or TV show. If you don't have the story, don't have the dialogue, that's where everything starts. The thing that drives me crazy is, is like, look, obviously cinematography is beautiful, but you can't shoot something that you don't know what you're at, what story you're actually telling. And the director has to pull it all together. And obviously the actors bring it to life. All this stuff. Yeah. Everything is the most important thing. I hear you on that. But where do we start? Is this film going to happen or not? It generally has to start with an actual story. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as leaf the town crier had spoke my lines. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, Roderick Thorpe is credited as one of the screenwriters for Die Hard. But apart from the basic structure and a couple of key scenes, which actually don't change that much in the, in the movie, the rest of it is completely wrong. For a starter, there's a daughter involved in it, and it's just tonally all very, very different to what ended up being Die Hard. And if you like the snazzier stuff, if some of the dialogue type scenes, a few of the character based scenes are real scenes from the original book, but things like the helicopter exploding on the top of Nakatomi Plaza, that was all Hollywood added later. So the two other screenwriters were Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. And they actually had themselves, I mean, this is the problem. This is my vision. Now I'm coming in and I'm giving you my vision. Okay, well, that vision was too dark. So here's my vision where I lighten it up a little bit. So you've got these tensions going on, and ultimately you kind of get lightning in the bottle. Because, of course, as you're aware, there are other Die Hard movies as well. There's Die Hard 2. There's the last one, Live Free or Die Hard. Make it stop! I can't remember what Die Hard 3 is actually called, but there's a lot of argument. Look, number one's the best. It's a bit like the Indiana Jones movies. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a piece of perfection. There's a big snake in the plane, Jock! Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie! I hate snakes, Jock! I hate them! And you can't get more perfect than perfect, can you? So leave Raiders of the Lost Ark alone, although there are other good ones, and there are some bad Indiana Jones movies. And I resisted, I resisted, I resisted, but I also never thought I'd be making Indiana Jones for So I, I, I kind of, I, I guess I kind of humored George. It's the same thing with the Die Hard movies. There are a total of five of them. Die Hard 4.0 is a perfectly serviceable action movie, but by then we're so far away from the original Die Hard as it's not really very good. The fifth one is just abysmal. But number three, there's a lot of people who think it's only just below the first one. So that's the one with Jeremy Irons in New York and with Samuel Jackson. So for starters, we, we finally get, if you like, a, a sort of like somebody for John McClane to actually play off. And I happen to know that Samuel Jackson has been on record saying that's his favorite ever role to be in and the one that's perhaps closest to him in terms of personality so look go at it have at it i love it too but yeah it's not 
quite as perfect. I think the real problem with the third one is they didn't quite know how to end it. There are literally on the DVD, there are two completely different endings. There's the theatrical ending, and then there's the one that they actually filmed before the theatrical ending, which everyone thought was just too dark and, and too sort of like low key. So I would say that perhaps up to the last 10 minutes of Die Hard 3, it probably blow for blow stands up with the original, but it just, just doesn't quite get there in the end. And obviously we're also riffing off the brother of the bad guy from the first movie, who is, of course, Hans Gruber. What idiot. Put you in charge. You did. Played by Alan Rickman. Now this, don't know if you know, know this or not, this will blow your mind. We have now seen Alan Rickman playing one of his definitive roles, and yet that was his first ever movie role. Now, to be clear, Alan Rickman is a highly talented theatre actor, and that's what got the attention of basically the casting side of things. They'd seen some footage of him, and he'd been on TV as well, but he'd never been in a movie. So imagine your first Hollywood movie is you're playing a baddie in a big action movie. And indeed, the Hans Gruber thing led to this trope of endless amounts of British actors quite often being British, or occasionally American actors pretending to be British being the bad guy in an action film. And so, 10 out of 10 to Alan Rickman on this. And if you like, what makes Die Hard so special? It's because everything works. The music is great. You've got John McTiernan, the director, just off another classic 80s action film, Predator, now moves on to Die Hard just a year later. And then what does he do just two years later? He does The Hunt for Red October. Those are three perfect sort of action thriller, sci-fi action movie type things in a row. What a run of movies. So you've got McTiernan firing on all cylinders. The screenplay just crackles. It's, it's funny, but also tense. You've got the perfect bad guy. Who said we were terrorists? He's smarter than you. He's two steps ahead of you. Do you even know what you're doing is what he's already anticipated? It's just a great cat and mouse game. And another classic where actually the bad guy and the hero hardly ever meet. Almost all of it is through basically radio dialogue. Obviously, there's the key scene at the end. But prior to that, there's one scene where they meet each other. And it's just great because that's a classic example of what Hitchcock was saying, that if you've got two people talking in a room, there is no drama. Now take the same scene and tell the audience there is a bomb under that table and will go off in five minutes. Well, the whole emotion of the audience is totally different. You can film exactly the same scene, and it is now dripping with suspense. And that is what happens, because we know Alan Rickman is pretending to be an average American schlub, and that Bruce Willis is none the wiser about this. And the moment Bruce Willis turns his back on, on Alan Rickman, he's dead. Well, I was just trying to get up on the roof, and see if I could signal for help, you know. Forget the roof. I said forget the roof. I got people all over. Come on, you want to stay alive, you stay with me. And that's just a great moment of tension. It doesn't cost a lot of money, it's just well written in that situation. So yeah, it's one of these things. Why does everyone rave about Die Hard? Because it all works. And you know what? Because most of the special effects are practical. 
you know, when things blow up, it's because they're really blowing up. So it looks as good today as it did in 1988. And Die Hard, along with the first Lethal Weapon, which came out just before it, these are the films that started setting that kind of high-octane, larger-than-life action that was just growing and growing. Yes, you'd had something like, and I have to be careful with this, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Makes no sense as a title, but anyway. Yes, that came way before either The Lethal Weapon or Die Hard. But the thing about the Rambo 2, as I will just call it, is... It was in a war. So if we could have helicopter gunships and huge explosions, I guess a war is always going to be bigger than just one man's rampage, which is what Rambo 2 is kind of all about. Whereas the thing about Lethal Weapon and Die Hard is in both cases, the central characters are police officers. They're not armed to their teeth. Their goal is not to make things blow up. But things do have a habit of blowing up a lot around them, which is what makes it so fun. Simple as that. Okay. So... It's sort of set it, resetting what the rest of the world expects from an action movie. This caused problems for the likes of James Bond, who had been rather staid. You know, they had created a formula in the 60s and it moved on into the 70s, but by the 80s it was kind of creaking a little bit, as was Roger Moore, although we just moved on to Timothy Dalton. But suddenly we're seeing Hollywood going, you know, this is how you film action, which meant that the next James Bond movie, which was called License to Kill, needed to up its gain substantially. Even more so when we started getting Schwarzenegger playing around with True Lies, which is really almost his version of a James Bond movie. And that's what led to why Goldeneye had to be rewritten and so on and so forth. So Die Hard is incredibly influential in cinema because it rewrote the rules of an action film. And nowadays, what we hear about is all, all the times like, oh, it's Die Hard on a bus. That would be speed. It's Die Hard on a ship. That would be under siege. And so, you know, Die Hard here, Die Hard there, Die Hard whatever. And indeed, Die Hard is used as a reference all the time. They're sealing the exits. Oh, my God. It's real life Die Hard. I mean, oh, no, crime. Right now, at the time of recording, there is a movie that's just come out called Violent Night, which is about a Santa trying to stop these kidnappers from kidnapping this rich family, although he himself is a... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bit of a bad Santa. So it's a bit of a comedy. And in this one, as he's trying to stop these people during Christmas, even in this film that has been created 30 years later, it's still referencing and literally referencing Die Hard in it. Now, for the record, Violent Night is, is, is a fun film. It's not going to be worrying anybody as one of the greatest action films ever. But if you just want to have a big cheesy grin on your face and you want to have sort of like a Christmassy themed action movie, check it out. It's fun. David Harbour stars as the sort of the bad Santa. So um, that, that that's fun. These bad men, they're all on my naughty list. Naughty! But all of this can be traced back to Die Hard. Let's go a lot further back than just the 1960s. Instead, let's go to the time of Jesus Christ, first century AD. Now, what's interesting about it is the nativity that you probably all saw in school at some point, or, you know, you ended up playing third shepherd or what have you. The thing about the nativity is what you see being portrayed sometimes on TV, but definitely in schools. That isn't in the Bible anywhere. As you are aware, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm not going to get into the technicalities of the writing of either the Old or the New Testament, but what's interesting is, of those four Gospels, only two of them were worried about the start of Jesus' life, so him as a child. And both of those are, are slightly conflicting stories. So what you're getting is basically an agreed compromise between those two stories, with some other traditions added on on top of it. Now, there is the whole debate about all Christian ceremonies are basically hijacking ancient pagan traditions. That's just too neat. There's definite coincidences. I mean, when people start specifically comparing Jesus to Mithras, the comparisons are all superficial. But what's under no illusion is the center of the winter period, the winter solstice, was incredibly important from people in Northern Europe in particular, because it was a sign that you're halfway through the really dangerous time when you could literally die because it was so cold outside and nothing's growing, so you better have brought in enough food to make you last through the winter, etc. So it was a point of kind of joy where there were lots of pagan festivals such as Yuletide. On every world, wherever people are, in the deepest part of the winter, at the exact midpoint, everybody stops and turns and hugs, as if to say, well done. Well done, everyone. We're halfway out of the dark. 
And what's interesting is you do, there's, under, there's no denying that there is this kind of mixture of this kind of obsession with the winter, with the period of Jesus' nativities, to the point where you can literally see pictures of Jesus in the manger with a covering of snow across the area that he's in. I'm telling you right now, if you want to have a look at the average temperatures in Bethlehem, or indeed just anywhere in the, you know, the Middle East or towards the coast of the Middle East, be it Israel, Jordan, Gaza, etc. You know, I'm not trying to get political here, but the point is we can all agree that it's kind of renowned for being fairly warm and fairly dry. Snow doesn't land there very often in December. Somebody's going to find a photo going, look, it happened in 1953 or whatever. It's like, well done. That proves how rare it is, okay? So, no, Jesus did not be born in a blizzard or anything like that. And indeed... The thing about the Bible, as I said before, is there are some people who believe that it is a truth, that it is a history book. And I always politely say, well, if, it, if the purpose of it was history, where are the dates? Because there are no dates anywhere in the Bible. And if you think you know that Jesus was born at Christmas time, you know, in the midwinter because of the Bible, it ain't there. That was actually agreed in the 4th century AD, by a bunch of bishops in Europe, who basically, you know, these are people who never met Jesus, most of them had never been to the area where he grew up, and yet these people, in essence, prayed hard enough and debated hard enough to agree that December 25th would become the actual date of Jesus' birth. And so there we go. Now, there are huge amounts of theories around it. It can't be too close to Easter because you can't have him dying and being born within, let's say, three weeks of each other. That's just going to confuse the local peasantry. That's a lovely idea, but we have no evidence to it. We don't know what was in the minds of people of the past unless they wrote any of this stuff down. Going back to Die Hard, is it a Christmas movie? Well, it's clearly not a Christmas movie in the sense of the nativity. There is nobody born in the movie. There are no mangers or donkeys or stars of, uh, you know, in the sky or three wise men or anything like that. So it's clearly not riffing off the basic nativity, the greatest story ever told. Do you know what? I'm going to tell you a story I wasn't planning on telling you. So if, if you are not aware, the, the nativity, the birth of Jesus Christ, is sometimes referred to as the greatest story ever told. Because if you are of that faith than the belief that, you're, that, that God brought down an element of itself into human form that would then live amongst the people. That's a pretty amazing story. And for later on, that, that child of God, the Son of God, sacrificing himself for the sins of all of humanity is a, is a beautiful and elegant idea, which causes all kinds of like moral conundrums and philosophical arguments and okay let's push that to one side i'm just looking at the core of the basic argument here so the greatest story ever told is sometimes the name for the nativity and indeed i remember as a kid sitting there watching a version of it my mum made me sit down and watch it. it was an animated version i was quite young my parents neither of them are particularly religious but my mother is of the opinion you are in a christian country you should be aware of what the, you know, you go to a school, you have to dress up sometimes as Joseph. This is what it's all about. Let's actually explain it to you, Jem. Thank you very much, Mum, by the way. But I always remember her saying, I was getting bored. I mean, it is a pretty boring story about, in essence, travel. You know, these two people going off and then they can't get a room in a hotel. This is not thrilling, okay? So I remember being bored about halfway through and... 
my mother said, well, don't you think it's the greatest story ever told? And I responded to her, went, no, Star Wars is better. And I don't recall my mother's response. It wasn't bursting out laughing or anything like that. But she she kept her act together. And you know what? I still <laughs> I still stand by that. The 1977 Star Wars is a better story. It is the greatest story ever told when compared to the nativity, which isn't a very interesting story in the first place. Perhaps I should just write one of the top ten greatest stories ever told. <laughs> so there you go, I'm just sort of putting that out there. None of this has got anything to do with Die Hard. So why do people think it's a it's a it's a Christmas movie? Well, for starters, at the time when it was released, they clearly didn't think it was much of a Christmas movie because guess what month it was launched in? <gasps> July, about as far away in the calendar as you can get from December 25th. And it was summer movie because that's when the summer blockbusters came out and it did very well. Now, for the record, there are lots of weird things about its launch. When they did finally choose Bruce Willis, they were very worried about him. He did, after all, have zero sort of action chops, unlike, you know, the Stallones and Schwarzeneggers of this world. But cleverly, they'd written John McClane to be an everyman. I do remember a few years ago, when it was obvious that Bruce Willis was never going to come back to the franchise, they came up with this idea of, why don't we do like a diehard prequel, where we see how John McClane sort of becomes the man we, we meet at the beginning of the first movie. And it's like, that's rubbish, because they go out of their way to show you what an average guy he is. He is not like a top ex-Special Forces sniper. He is just your average New York detective who is going to L.A. because his family's in the middle of a potential divorce. He is trying to reconcile with his wife. This is all very normal, okay? It's just what happens next isn't. He talks to a guy on the plane. The guy can tell he's a bit anxious on the airplane, and he's a bit jet-lagged as well, and he, so he gives him this weird advice. goes, look, it sounds crazy, but just take off your shoes and socks and make fists with your toes on the carpet and it makes you feel better and you see john mcclain actually trying that out and he sort of like chuckles to himself going yeah it kind of works kind of thing so this is the thing about bruce willis is he he's got a sparkle to him he is that kind of everyman particularly in the 80s and he's cute he's funny he does one-liners he did ad-lib some of the lines in the movie something that stallone really wouldn't do schwarzenegger occasionally did but those were only ever like you know, I'm killing you lines rather than just sort of like banter, which is something that Willis could do. But the thing is, the the studio was so worried about this. First of all, the budget was pretty slim, particularly for an action movie, so much so that, and most people know this, that Nakatomi Plaza was literally the building of the company that made the film. So they were in the offices and the explosions and things like that, they had to do on a weekend because it was distracting everybody who was just doing you know, the day job. I'm sorry, something's blowing up at the moment while I'm trying to have an intelligent business conversation with you. Although now it's a national landmark in, in L.A. and everybody knows it as Nakatomi Plaza rather than what it is, the Fox building. So anyway, the point is they had such little faith on Bruce Willis that, OK, budget was small, but the original poster was just the actual Nakatomi Plaza with an explosion on the side of it. A building was considered more box office than Bruce Willis, and it was the second poster where half of it's the building and half of it's sort of like Bruce Willis pushed up against a wall, which is the, the building. So suddenly it's like, yeah, we'll admit that Bruce Willis is in this film. And it's the same thing. If you're going to watch out for the trailer for Die Hard, you have to be careful which one you've got, because if you find the original, original trailer, 
it's like every other 80s action movie. I'm kind of hoping at this point we'll get a bit of Greg magic going on. Suddenly, as if by magic, it's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists... You want money? What kind of terrorists are you? Who said we were terrorists? Have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, you just got to kill me. But there was one that was released, I think, for maybe the 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary, where they edit together all of the Christmas moments in the movie and sort of add some sort of sleigh bells to it. And then it suddenly feels far more like a Christmas movie. This is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! ...he'll never forget. I've told you kind of why it isn't a Christmas movie and why obviously it's not linked to actual Jesus Christ times, but let's go back to not quite as far as Jesus, but let's go to the year 1815, to Indonesia, and Mount Tambora explodes, spreading ash across the globe. What has this got to do with anything? Well, it led to a global cooling, so much so that unusually for a couple of Christmases after 1815, you actually get snow in southern England over Christmas time. Now, just so you're aware, I've checked this from the Met Office. So they have pointed out that statistically speaking, it is more likely that it will snow in England during Easter than it will during Christmas. A white Christmas is very rare in England, not so much in Scotland or indeed lots of other northern territories. Just ask Canada or whatever. The point is, this is all to do with England. And that's because those Christmases after the explosion of Mount Tambora were some of the first Christmases that an English writer called Charles Dickens remembers. So that is why when we leap forwards to 1843 and he writes the absolute classic, A Christmas Carol, that's when we get this imagery of snow everywhere because it's what Dickens remembered as a child. So the thing about Scrooge and all that kind of stuff and, and you know, the different ghosts, etc., it's all about basically redemption and also these sort of like these these moments where, you, you know, you get these images like get a goose. Now, obviously, that's turned into a turkey. But really, it was in the 1840s in England. I, I wrote a book called The British Empire and 100 Facts. And I don't shy away things like slavery, but I point out some of the positives and mingled in amongst the facts. Every now and then I do imperial invention. So I talk about things like the Flushing Lavatory. But also I talk about Christmas and say, look, clearly Jesus wasn't British. But in the 1840s, we get the introduction of the German ritual of bringing in a tree. This is from Prince Albert marrying Victoria. So we get this German tradition. Then in the same year, we get a British guy coming up with this idea of sending Christmas themed postcards to people, which is where we get the Christmas card from. And then in the same year, we get like Charles Dickens producing this absolutely classic tale that has been retold again and again and again and again. But it's more about Dickens and the world of Die Hard than anything else. And so it is happening at Christmas time. So therefore, you have Christmas trees. And of course, the bit at the end when he manages to sort of like tape his gun to his back with Christmas tape. 
And there is the classic bit, I'm really hoping that Greg's going to do this, where he manages to kill one of the bad guys, and then he's brought down into the lift, and then he says, Now I have a machine gun. And, you know, there's actual comments from Hans Gruber himself saying, you know, you know, you wanted a Christmas miracle, I give you the FBI, and so on and so forth. So there are all these references to Christmas. And indeed, Let It Snow plays as well at the end as paper falls down like snow. So they're having fun. And if you like, the point of it is it's referencing some of the things that have been mentioned by Dickens. But also, it's that classic juxtaposition. It's the same thing in Lethal Weapon as well. The first Lethal Weapon happens around Christmas time. And there is that very powerful scene where you've got Riggs at home. And in the background, there's a, like a Looney Tunes Christmas special. But at the same time, he's contemplating his own suicide. The way he got the job as Hamlet is that moment of just sort of sheer desperation. That's what caught the attention of the filmmakers for that movie, and that's why Mel Gibson ended up doing his version of Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So the point here is that it's not uncommon to have Christmas during an action movie because, you know, it, it's the time of warmth and fuzziness and everyone being together and all that good stuff, which is... The absolute opposite of, like, fighting for your life and killing people with your bare hands and beating someone to death with a shoe or whatever. I don't think that actually happens in Die Hard. And it is worth pointing out that people suffered in Die Hard. Bruce Willis lost some of his hearing permanently. When you have the scene and he's underneath the table and the guy says, you should have shot rather than, you know, waste time or whatever, he goes, thanks for the advice, and shoots the guy underneath the table. That Beretta gun was so close to his ear and he wasn't, and because of the camera angle, he couldn't put in ear protectors. The discharge underneath the table where he obviously got the sound banging around all over the place, he actually ended up becoming partially deaf in one ear for that. You can also see him wincing. That's not acting. That's just a man in pain in that situation. And also him jumping in front of the explosion. Obviously he didn't jump off a whole building, but all these kind of stuff. Willis did quite a lot of his own stunts. And the hilariously, and most people know this, but I'll just put it out there anyway, the reason why Alan Rickman looks so surprised when he is dropped by Bruce Willis at the end of the movie is because he was on this sort of special pulley that was sort of like let him drop while they could take a, a film shot of him in front of a blue screen. They were told that we would drop you on three. And they went one, two, and then dropped him. So at that point, and it's all filmed in slow motion, so his real reaction is, I'm like, oh my God, am I being, you know, has the thing broken? Am I about to die? So it's, it's just a, a great moment. So look, you know, it's got snow. It's got Christmas trees in it. It's got various comments about Christmas miracles, etc. But does that make it a Christmas movie? Because at the end, you do get some redemption. And the one person I haven't spoken about, and I am going to say the one bit that my wife doesn't really doesn't like in Die Hard, and I do have to admit I find it hard to defend, is Reginald Vell Johnson, who's Sergeant Al Powell, and it's all a bit mawkish. It's I know it's kind of like the the buddy thing, and you know John McClane needs to open up to somebody, but he's just a little bit over mawkish, and he doesn't play too well, particularly to my wife or whatever, but. He himself is somebody who had undergone a real trauma in his police career, which has led to him sort of like now becoming a 
you know, just sitting beside a, behind a desk and certainly not wanting to get involved in the violence that's involved in Die Hard. Hey, pal, you got flat feet? What the hell are you talking about, man? Something had to get you off the street. What's the matter? You don't think jockeying papers across a desk is a noble effort for a cop? No. I had an accident. But he is sort of like forced to redeem himself and also protect somebody who is at that point vulnerable, i.e. Bruce Willis. But obviously it is through an act of violence in and of itself. It's completely justifiable and we can all agree that it was the right thing to do and it's absolutely framed that way. But it's fair to say that nothing that Dickens wrote or indeed anything in Jesus's life depended on killing people and shooting people as quickly as possible. So the message isn't very Christmassy. So I, I, and, and yes, as I said at the beginning of this, Bruce Willis himself says it's not a, a Christmas movie. I'm going to say it's an excellent movie, a, a perfect action film that happens to be set at Christmas. But it's not a Christmas movie in and of itself, any more than something like Gravity. It's set in space, but... That's, you know, is, is it really a sci-fi movie in the same way as Star Wars or Star Trek is? It's, it's just, I don't feel it's quite there. I absolutely love Die Hard, okay? It's just, I'm going to say It's a Wonderful Life is a more appropriate Christmas movie. Or Home Alone. You know, take your pick in terms of level of seriousness on any of these things. I think the two most recent classic Christmas movies are Elf and Arthur Christmas. If you haven't seen that animated one. It's from Aardman. It's absolutely brilliant and genuinely funny as well, but also thoughtful too, etc. So, I don't know. Check out all the movies I've just said, including Violent Night, for example, but definitely Die Hard if you haven't seen it for like 12 months. Watch it again. Why not? Thank you very much for listening. And as always, another episode coming soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.